this module. So everything you've learned today, this completes the, this module. So you can wrap these lecture things up and start studying for your exam. Yay! And you won't be watching the Super Bowl on Friday, I mean Sunday. Absolutely not. You'll be studying genetics and signal transduction. So you've learned a lot about the foundations to medicine. If I could listen to me, watch me. That's what, that's what the Grenadians say, watch me. Yeah, watch me. It's true. And that means pay attention to me right now like a, yeah. Pay attention to me. We're going to be learning about gene regulation. So we're going to be tying in a lot of concepts, even though we're talking about gene regulation. It's going to be tying into some of the things you've heard about, you know, the signal transduction. You've learned about amino acids, and that actually comes to play um, when we're talking about gene regulation. Knowing particular structures on DNA that proteins bind to. So it's DNA protein interactions, and it's these interactions that can affect how our genes are regulated in the cell. We have regulation of genes in the prokaryotic world, and we're going to be going through some examples that might seem a little complex if we give those to you first. So we're going to start with the prokaryotic world, build you up to some of the things that happen in the eukaryotic world. And then, because we've learned it a lot till now, we can actually take this information and do our own gene regulation in a test tube, and we're actually learning how we can insert little bits of DNA into a, uh, an animal model, and we can actually upregulate and downregulate genes. Kind of scary, but really cool. So gene regulation. To get started, we know that there has to be some sort of protein system that interacts with the DNA. I've already mentioned that. So you have this protein, and if you can think of it this way, the protein has to have a substrate. The substrate is DNA. It's particular sequences of DNA that particular proteins are attracted to. Just like a restriction endonuclease looks for a particular signature sequence, we have RNA polymerase that looks for a particular signature sequence. RNA polymerase on its own sometimes works pretty good, if the DNA is nice and flat. Sometimes RNA polymerase needs some help if the DNA has some kinks in it. Nature has a way to um, overcome all of these different obstacles, and we're going to be learning about that today. So RNA polymerase must find a promoter. It's a region of DNA called a promoter, and it's found upstream of a gene. So if we're talking about DNA, we know that we speak about DNA in the 5 prime to 3 prime sense, so it's going to be more 5 prime than our gene of interest. Polymerase can bind DNA directly, and that typically happens in bacteria. A lot of times in the eukaryotic system, we have other proteins that help, and these proteins are called transcription factors. And they will bind upstream of the DNA, upstream of like the gene region. It could be really close to where the promoter is, and we could have these regions of DNA really far along the DNA far from the promoter, interacting with proteins. And then these proteins fold back because DNA is not just a static, like, linear thing. It's actually pretty flexible. And that region of DNA will come over. It has proteins on itself, and it will interact with the RNA polymerase 
either upregulating or downregulating these systems. You're learning that in biology, nothing is completely black and white. We've got all these shades of gray. We have to be able to turn on a lot of genes, but it's not going to be all or nothing. There's going to be a reason why you want perhaps a little bit of protein expressed. Let's, let, let's say you just have like a cookie as a snack, and you want to begin to express the proteins to metabolize the sugar. But if you eat a half a pie, or you're studying for an exam and you eat the whole tub of the Haagen-Dazs, you're going <laughs> to be upregulating a lot more. Just like when you're sitting and studying, you're metabolizing, making energy a lot differently than when you're jogging. So there has to be all these different layers of regulation, and we're going to be starting to just touch the tip of the iceberg as to how some of these things happen. So we're going to be starting in the prokaryotic world. In general, I have a whole bunch of pictures here going from top to bottom. We have double-stranded DNA. We have the pink double-stranded DNA, and that's to represent where our gene of interest is. We're going to want to start making RNA starting at the pink. You'll notice right at the interface between the pink and the green DNA, we have a number. And if you look down a little bit more, it says plus one. I'm going to circle it. Plus one. So the region between the green, green and the pink, plus one means that's the start of where RNA polymerase is going to begin to make its mRNA transcript. So it's right to left because that's the way we speak about DNA. If you go from the right to left, we begin to number the base pairs with a negative number. So right beside this, plus one will be to the left, will be negative one, and then negative two, and negative three, and so forth. In the bacteria region, in the back, sorry, into the, in the bacteria promoter region, we have this area called the minus 10 region, and we have an area called the minus 35 region. RNA polymerase looks for this region, but it has help with, of a subunit, a subunit called a sigma factor. RNA polymerase and the sigma factor will scan along the DNA until it finds a minus 10, minus 35 region, because these are signature sequences. And if you look at the picture, once you get the, the, the signature sequences, the, the sigma factor and the RNA polymerase together, at the right place we begin to open up the DNA. What do you think these, the, the flavor of these base pairs are? Are they AT-rich or GC-rich? AT, because we have less hydrogen bonds, we're going to break it open there. So the sigma factor helps open up the, uh, the DNA, double-stranded DNA, and it begins to look at the, um, the, the, strand that, the template strand, and we're going to start to synthesize a few base pairs of DNA, uh, sorry, mRNA. And as we synthesize mRNA, we go from the five prime to the three prime direction. So this RNA polymerase will move from the left to the right. For a moment, we'll have a DNA-RNA hybrid. And that, at this point, the, the sigma factor gets released. And then the RNA polymerase can continue to synthesize the RNA. That's just the basics of it. That's just the basics of what the RNA polymerase does. Even in bacteria, we have two basic flavors of genes, genes that are constitutively expressed. It's a fancy word for housekeeping genes. So these genes are expressed at a low level all the time. And when we say genes expressed, they're expressed to mRNA, and mRNA is later converted to protein. That's what we mean when we say expressed. So there's typical things that a cell needs to grow and survive and thrive. We call them housekeeping genes. Constitutive genes are expressed at low levels all the time. 
There's other genes that only are, that are particularly expressed at certain times. If you're thinking about in the bacterial system, and even if you think of in the eukaryotic system, we're not going to be expressing all of our genes all the time. We don't need all those proteins around, and there's particular reasons to have these proteins expressed. So in order for the cells to save energy, they only express certain genes at certain times, and we call this regulated. So even in the eukaryotic, the prokaryotic world and the eukaryotic world, of course, we have these regulated genes. So for both the eukaryotic world and the prokaryotic world, we have this type, a number of different types of regulation. They could be, we can regulate gene expression at the transcription level, mRNA processing, you've learned all this, translation, and we can even regulate the protein half-life. So if you have a protein that doesn't survive very long in a cytosol, then it'll go away quickly so we can regulate the expression of that protein based on protein stability. If you ever get a question that asks where the major regulation takes place in bacteria and in the eukaryotic world, it's at the transcriptional level. So we're going to be going through a lot of examples on how to regulate protein expression at the transcriptional level. This is the bare, bare, bare bones. This is just typically what happens in, in the eukaryotic, sorry, prokaryotic world. We have the double-stranded DNA. We have a region of DNA that RNA polymerase binds to. And to the right, there's a signature sequence and it's called the operator region. Anytime you have a signature sequence, you know a protein is going to bind to it. So RNA polymerase likes to bind to the promoter. Regulatory proteins that will regulate the trans transcription of this mRNA will bind to the operator. So the operator is a binding site. Please remember for proteins that help regulate gene expression. This is the simplest picture. At this operator region, proteins will bind to it, and there's two types, two basic types of proteins that will bind here. Repressors, they bind to this operator region to prevent RNA polymerase from initiating transcription. Sorry, transcription. And I'm going to show you a picture of that. And then we have activator proteins. These activator proteins, they'll bind to or very near the operator region to allow RNA polymerase to initiate transcription. Remembering that I mentioned earlier, sometimes DNA, it doesn't always behave nice and linear. Sometimes it needs some, um, a little bit of protein to bind to the DNA to help stabilize the DNA for RNA polymerase to bind down and initiate trans, uh, transcription. So right after this, I have a little animation because I like to see these things sort of zoom around the screen. Repression, that's when the transcription is blocked. And in this case, I have the um, RNA polymerase in the brown. So these two um, spheres, the RNA polymerase. And then we have an, a protein that's bound to the operator region. So typically, it's a repressor protein when it binds to the operator and it blocks transcription. And an activator protein, RNA polymerase is assisted. I guess you talk about football like that when you get an assist, yeah? No? I don't know football, sorry. I'm Canadian, I know hockey. RNA polymerase and, and a promoter. So now I've got the flying proteins. An operator will bind, a protein will bind to the operator system. Repression, transcription is blocked. So I guess I could make a football analogy there too if I knew a little bit more about football. Blocked. Operator is a block. He's a blocker. A linebacker, is that what you said? Is, who's a blocker? 
a linebacker. Yeah? I don't know. Forget that analogy because I don't know what I'm talking about. If we go lower down, you're not watching the Super Bowl, so just forget it. So if we look further down, we have our double-stranded DNA. We have RNA polymerase at the promoter region. It needs some help. So we have this activator protein coming in, giving the RNA polymerase a little bit of help in order to transcribe, trans so transcription is enabled. The people who figured this all out were Jakob and Minot, and they got a Nobel Prize for doing this work. They were working with bacteria, and they knew bacteria love eating glucose. That's their preferred choice of food. Now, bacteria really don't have a choice of what they can go and eat. They have to eat what's in the environment. They're very happy if there's glucose around because it's the easiest thing for them to metabolize. It takes a lot less effort to metabolize glucose. So if glucose is around, the bacteria will turn on the genes. Well, they didn't know this yet, so okay, I'm, I'm jumping the gun here. They wanted to know what would happen to bacteria if they changed, this glucose, they changed the glucose and they added lactose to the system. So they knew that there was a gene, a gene, well, a protein product called beta-galactosidase, and its job is to cleave lactose into its units, um, galactose and glucose. That was the activity. So they figured they were going to see if they changed the uh, sugar source from glucose to lactose, they figured they would see a lot more of this beta-galactosidase being expressed. A secondary reaction that beta-galactosidase does is it converts lactose to something called allolactose. And I have allolactose to the right on the screen in red. Now I've shown this to you because you know it's going to be important in a moment, right? So just think about that allolactose. Whenever there's lactose around, in the presence of beta-galactosidase, we always have a little bit of allolactose around too. What Jakob and Minot found was that if they take glucose away from bacteria that were very happy to begin with, take their glucose away, give them lactose, they saw the presence of three proteins, the overexpression or the induced expression of three proteins. Beta-galactosidase, an enzyme that they called permease, and um, another enzyme called transacetylase, all involved in basically the metabolism of the lactose, letting it into the cell and perhaps converting it a little bit. They did a few tests mutating these bacteria, and they actually made mutations in the DNA. And so they made a whole host of mutants, and they found out what stopped working. What they figured out was that there was three genes. LAC-Z, yes, I'm Canadian, you might call it LAC-Z, LAC-Z, the LAC-Y, and the LAC-A. So this is what they called the genes that had the information to make the proteins. They found that these um, proteins were overexpressed and they determined what the DNA sequence was. When they did this, when they were doing their mutational studies, they realized that the LAC-Z, LAC-Y, and LAC-A, they were organized, the DNA was organized tip to tail, tip to tail, tip to tail. mRNA for the, for the LAC-Z, LAC-Y, and LAC-A were connected. And they were driven by one promoter. One promoter. So if that bacteria needed to metabolize lactose on one bit of mRNA, they would have all the information, the mRNA, to encode for the structural genes. So you expressed all of them at the same level. 
really cool. There's a name for this. It's called polycystronic mRNA. So don't forget that word, polycystronic. And that means, um, cystronic is an old name for gene, so it's poly. So it's tip to tail, tip to tail, tip to tail, these three genes together. Same operator, sorry, the same promoter region. And then he, they realized that there was a region of DNA that a protein would bind to that could interfere with the expression of this mRNA. A little bit upstream, they found a gene called the LAC-I, and they called it LAC-I, I think, for I for inhibitory. There's a protein that is transcribed from that LAC-I-Z gene. And this protein, where do you think it's going to bind? Get a, take a guess. The operator. It's going to bind to the operator region. Really cool. So that depending on the presence or absence of lactose, we can express these three genes all together. So that's in words just what I, just what I, I explained. Huh? No? Okay. So the LAC-I um, encodes a repressor protein that shuts down the system when lactose is not present. So this is an example of a constitutively expressed gene. So we're always going to be expressing this gene. So if there's no lactose around, that, um, that LAC-I protein will bind to the operator region, not letting RNA polymerase make those structural genes. So if there's no lactose around, we don't need those structural genes expressed. If lactose is added to the cell, there's a way to turn on this system. So we would say that the lac operon is an inducible system. So here's a nice picture of what I just said. We have the lac operon with the lac operator, the lac P, the, pro the, uh, the protein that's um, made from the information in the lac I gene. The repressor protein binds the lac O. So no lactose, the system is turned off. How do we turn this on? How does this cell uh, or how does it detect the presence of lactose? Well, it actually doesn't detect this, the presence of lactose. It detects the presence of allolactose. Allolactose will bind. Okay, now we're going to get into some details here. Allolactose will bind to the operator protein, or the inhibitor protein bound at the operator, and then the, uh, the inhibitory protein changes conformation. So allolactose will bind to that repressor protein, change the conformation, and then it's released from the operator, and then it goes away. So now RNA polymerase can come to the promoter because there's lactose around, allolactose is around, that's why the, the cell knows there's lactose around, and then we'll be, RNA will polymerase will come and we'll start to make that mRNA, that polycystronic RNA. I mentioned that the way Jakob and Minot figured out all these things is because they made mutants. They figured what didn't work so that then they could infer what the DNA at any particular region was. So if, we, if you look here, we have this little minus sign. LAC Z minus, LAC Y minus, LAC A minus. These are mutants, and they realized that if they mutated the DNA in these particular regions, these were structural gene mutations, so they led to non-functional proteins. If you had a mutation in the P, that's a LAC-P, that's the promoter region, that means there was a non-functional promoter, RNA polymerase can't bind, so none of the genes are expressed. And then we have LAC-OC, so it's, uh, if we have a mutation in the operator region, it's a non-functional operator, the repressor never binds, and since the system 
can't be shut down. This is like a constitutive mutation because now all of these structural genes will always at a low level be expressed. So it's a constitutive mutation. They also realized that if they um, mutated the DNA that, that encoded for the repressor protein, that's a lac I, it would encode for a non-functional repressor protein, unable to bind to the operator to shut off transcription. And this lac IS, and that's a super repressor. So in that case, it mutated out the allolactose binding site. So this protein would bind to the operator region, and it would never pop off because it was never affected by the presence of allolactose. So that system was always off. We call this type of regulation negative regulation. So the lac operon is under negative regulation plus minus lactose. So now we're going to add a little bit of complexity to this. Lac operon is also under positive control. When the activator, there's an activator protein that will actually help to increase efficient transcription. So the example that I gave you before where we just, we don't have any repressor protein at the operator, RNA polymerase will come down, it can transcribe the protein, the, the structural genes. This happens at a very low level. It needs some help to kick it up a notch. So we only need to we make a little bit, a little bit at a time, a little bit of slur to background, transcription and translation. We need to kick it up a notch when we have particular conditions. And the particular condition that I'm thinking the most of is when we have glucose and lactose around glucose and lactose around. That means if there's actose, there's allolactose, and we're going to have a little bit of the trend of the uh, structural genes being expressed. Yeah? But if there's glucose around, we don't need to make any more of it. The only time we need to make more structural genes is when the glucose level goes really down. And then there's no glucose, but there's lactose around. Then we'll begin to make the structural genes. So this is positive control of this lac operon. E. coli, as I mentioned before, favorite carbon source is glucose. So um, while E. coli can metabolize lactose, so this, I'm repeating myself here, it actually prefers glucose as the carbon source. So we call this positive control of not only the lactose operon, but all of the other enzymes that, are, that will metabolize any other sugars. We would call this positive control of other operons in the absence of glucose. So when there's glucose presence, we don't, present, we don't need to make any other structural genes. We don't have to transcribe the proteins from any other operons. Just, yes? Every time you have lactose, if there's a little bit of beta-galactosidase around, it converts just a little bit to allolactose. So if lactose is around in any substantial quantities, there'll always be a little bit of allolactose converted. Okay, and that's why it's a regulator of this whole operon. So this is just to remind you, glucose is more efficient because um, lactose, only 50% of it is glucose, but if it has glucose, it doesn't need to do all these extra steps. So it's all about whether or not you've got glucose. If a cell runs out of glucose, there's an enzyme called adenyl cyclase that will convert ATP to cyclic AMP. And this is something that happens, the pathway, well, you don't need to know for this lecture. You will need to know later. If a cell runs out of glucose, a small molecule called cyclic AMP, or CAMP for short, is produced. And you just did that? Oh, gosh. Maybe that's why we put it together then. 
Yeah? Cool. I don't think I've ever said camp in front of him, but I usually call it cyclic AMP, the long form. Yeah? Okay. Don't call it camp. Camp, 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 camp. <laughs> so this camp, this cyclic AMP is the hunger signal that permits the expression of other genes. Because if we have cyclic AMP in the system, in the, in the, in the, um, in this bacteria, cyclic AMP levels rising means decreasing concentrations of glucose. So if we have no glucose, we have cyclic AMP. That's funny. I, I don't know if I can go on. <laughs> so cyclic AMP is the hunger signal. It tells the, the bacteria that there's no more um, glucose, that it should start looking for other sugar sources to metabolize. Cyclic AMP binds to an activator protein called CRP, cyclic AMP receptor protein, or sometimes some textbooks call it CAP, catabolite activator protein. Now, when cyclic AMP binds to its protein that it's supposed to, it now becomes an active molecule, and this protein-cyclic AMP um, hybrid helps bind, um, will then bind to the LAC-P, so that's near the, out near the promoter, to help activate transcription. So just looking at this picture, I don't even have to look at any words. I want to look at what's going on in the picture. I've got inactive CRP. So if it's inactive, that means there's no cyclic AMP around. Do we have glucose or not? Yeah, we have it because there's no cyclic AMP in this picture. Now I have the repressor protein. You've seen this green repressor protein. And I see this pink thing. What's the pink thing? Nice. The pink thing's allolactose, so do I have lactose around? Yes. So I don't have, or, sorry, I do have glucose, but I also have lactose around. RNA polymerase is not really going to work very well because it needs that helper of the activated CRP. So we're going to have low level of transcription, but we don't need a lot because we have glucose around. Okay, so it, it, on the bottom, if you look at the bottom, it's got it in words. When glucose is present, no cyclic AMP is produced, so the CRP is inactive. RNA polymerase can't really do a very good job initiating transcription, even though the, the, the operator is still there. The repressor is not bound to it, so RNA polymerase theoretically can transcribe, but it doesn't do it at a very good level. It won't do it at a very good level until we have cyclic AMP. When cyclic AMP is around, what's happening to the concentration of glucose? It's going down. So at this point, it will activate, we'll have an active CRP binding near the promoter region. And now, with no glucose present, cyclic AMP produced, activate CRP, and now um, RNA polymerase will help, um, RNA polymerase will be able to transcribe these structural genes. And I think I have a moving. Oh, no, I don't. I thought I had them moving. I just have an arrow here. So when cyclic AMP is bound to the CRP, it binds near the promoter region, helping RNA polymerase bind, make those structural genes. And there's nothing inhibiting it because there's lactose around. If the hunger signal is given but lactose is absent, this is what you're going to find. We're going to have activated CRP. We're going to have RNA polymerase, but without allolactose around without lactose and that little bit of allolactose around, we're going to have that repressor protein bound. We're not going to make any of the structural genes. 
This is in your Lippincott picture, so this is another way to look at all this information. It has the three different situations. Operon off, plus glucose, minus lactose. And look at the pictures of the enzymes, and please be familiar with that. Operator on, operon on, minus glucose, plus lactose. That's the best way to um, transcribe all of these um, structural proteins. Uh, we have the operator on. So, and the operator is off when we have plus glucose, plus lactose. These are favorite questions. Favorite questions on exams. So if you can't work it out the way it's supposed to be, then just go to this. This is like your Punnett squares that you were doing for your, your autosomal recessive. So just memorize this, this Punnett square if you have to. If you can't work it out based on whether glucose is high, glucose is low, please memorize this. But I'd like you to realize that when glucose is present and lactose is present, we can say that um, the lac operon is off. But just know that because lactose is present, RNA polymerase every once in a while will make some structural genes. Okay, so actually on, but only just a tiny, tiny bit. Memorize this. Okay, put a big yellow star. Yeah. Five, four, three, two, one. So this, this media is containing only glucose. Is there cyclic AMP around? No, there's no cyclic AMP around. If there's no lactose around, it doesn't say anything about lactose. Will there be um, something? Will there be, ugh, will the operator be opened or will there be something there? something will be there. Okay. So you have to work out these questions that way before you answer. Very nice. 83%. So you have to think about the two situations. Is there glucose around? If there's no glucose around, there's cyclic AMP around. We're going to be activating that CRP protein. If lactose is around, there will be, not, there will be no repressor bound to the operator region. So please make sure if, at, if you don't understand it, just memorize that Punnett square. So I'm going to continue with um, using this basic principles and going into the eukaryotic gene regulation. And I'll stop at 10.2. We'll have our break, and then we'll finish it off, hopefully early. Because it's Friday night. I don't want to be here much either. But it's my pleasure to give you the ultimate lecture of this module. Yeah. Who's playing the Super Bowl anyways? Raiders and what? No. Who? Atlanta and Patriots and, and Falcons. Patriots and Falcons. Ooh. I used to like San Francisco because the head coach was really cute. 
Okay, in the eukaryotic world, it's no surprise that we have a lot more complexities here. We've got, well, in the, in the, in the, in the prokaryotic world, DNA was synthesized, RNA or can be duplicated, RNA is made and protein can be made all in the cytosol, all together. But in the eukaryotic world, we have these things in the way. We, the DNA, RNA is, is made in the, in the nucleus, and then it goes into the cytoplasm, and that's where we make the protein. So we have sort of this two-step thing. So things are a little bit more complicated. So if we're regulating on the trans, transcriptional level, it's, these are things that proteins are going to have to go into the nucleus and do their business there. So we have the DNA, and that's in the nucleus, and we can, we can control the level of transcription in, right between the DNA and making that primary RNA. But you know that as RNA polymerase works, it does things to make it a mature transcript. It gets rid of the introns, puts a five prime cap, and it has the and, and we have the poly A tail, and then it's transported into the cytoplasm, and then we can um, control the amount of mRNA at that point depending on how stable it is, how long the poly A tail is, things like that. And then we can control translation with, you know, whether there's ribosomes around. But at the end of the day, we have the main uh, regulation is at this transcriptional control because of all of these different reasons. <laughs> Bless you. So we have this concept that we use all the time when we're talking about genetics, cis and trans. Cis, like you can think of the or, or, uh, your chemistry, organic chemistry, cis means the same side. Cis, same side. Did you do that one? Yeah. All these cis elements, all these cis elements are DNA elements. So there's sequences of DNA. DNA that has a particular, particular signature because it attracts the trans factors. The trans regulatory elements are proteins that will bind to the cis elements. Okay, promise me you'll never forget that. The trans elements are proteins. The cis elements are on the, is the DNA themselves. So we have these proteins, these transcription factors that will bind to the DNA, typically upstream of the, the start of transcription, and it will help RNA regulate how fast, how much RNA is being made. These the three different cis elements we're going to be talking about today have these consensus sequences. They are the substrate for those proteins. They have a particular sequence that attracts the transcription factors. We have the basal promoter sequence, and these are where the general transcription factors bind. You'll see the words general transcription factor proteins, or you'll, call, or you'll see basal transcription factor. This is just the bare bones. This is the basic elements required to, to, to transcribe these genes. We have proximal control regions. So these bind transcription factors. They're found very near the promoter. And then we have these enhancer sequences. And these cis elements can be close to the promoter. They can be very far away. They can actually, don't tell anybody that I told you this, but they can be in intervening regions. They can be five prime, uh, downstream, upstream of the gene. But for the most part, enhancer sequences are found uh, at five prime upstream can be up to 2,000 base pairs away. How does this work? Well, luckily, DNA is a little bit flexible, and all of these proteins eventually can interact with each other. This is the basal promoter region. So we're going to start simple, and then we're going to build up on the complexity. 
This includes the Tata box, and it's also called the Hognes box. And that is what? Between minus 20 and minus 30 base pairs upstream. See if to the left, sorry, the very right of this figure, we have plus 1, and that's the start of transcription. So in DNA speak, anything upstream, we have those minus numbers. And about minus 70 base pairs, we have the cat box. These are regions that attract proteins to bind to them to help regulate transcription. So it's just that this is the basal sort of transcriptional apparatus. And the proteins that bind to them will be the basal transcriptional machinery. Why do we bother with this basal region and upstream promoter regions? Well, it's again, it's the gray areas. We have, I, I'm so sorry that those books came out about the shades of gray because I used to use this as an analogy and now it just sounds nasty. But we have these different layers of activity that we need to express. So there's a lot of different combinations of factors that are expressed differently in different cells so that your skin cell doesn't need as much, you know, enzymes to, 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 to generate energy as much as a, a heart cell does, right? So we have all these different flavors of activity, different proteins that allow for very tight regulation of transcription. This, again, we're starting off with a basal control region. We've got RNA polymerase 2. And you know why is this RNA polymerase 2? Because it's mRNA being made. Do you remember that? Yeah. RNA polymerase 2 wants to make um, the mRNA. It has the transcription factor 2D, and it also has these other transacting factors that will bind to the promoter region to help RNA polymerase do its job. This is the basal transcriptional machinery, low level. We have these proximal promoters that will, can in, increase expression and provide specificity. These enhancer binding transcription factors, they help sort of provide more specificity and we can amplify expression even more than what the basal transcriptional machinery. Because our DNA in this picture is nice here to explain, because the DNA can bend over, we can have the enhancer region. So the red DNA, the enhancer region, is the cis elements. And then we have the light blue proteins that are binding to this enhancer region that interact with the basal transcriptional machinery. And then RNA polymerase can really work good. So this is the highest levels of transcription, and that's our upregulation. Another picture depicting the same thing that I just said, that we can have an enhancer region really far upstream of the promoter, up to 2,000 base pairs, and it still functions as an enhancer. Bless you. These transacting transcription factors, they all have some sort of basic structure. So we have this nice picture of a dimer. At the top, we have the red, red arm sticking out. These are called... Um, the activation or, or repression domain, depending on what we need, and we'll explain that in a minute. We always have a region, and we show the region in blue, and it's called the dimerization domain. And then each peptide has a DNA binding domain. A little bit to the left and a little bit to the right, you know, DNA is double helical structure. So if you look down at the bottom of this picture, we have um, the three um, these, these three families are spoken about all the time. They're very well investigated. We have the zinc finger, helix turn helix in the leucine zipper and the, even though they all look different they all have the same basic domains if you look at the bottom you see the arms that intercalate into the into the alpha helix yeah or not the alpha helix the double helix sorry i just i just taught proteins this morning 
And then the helix turned helix, you see that the, the two bits of DNA to the left and the right, they, they go in between those, those um, the double helix. And the zinc finger, again, it has the same motifs too, the DNA binding motifs. In the middle of all of these, we have the, the dimerization domain. And at the top, we have regions that can interact with other proteins. And these can be enhance DNA transcription. So we have these three basic domains. They can be homodimers. They can be heterodimers. I'm going to be showing you examples of both homodimers and heterodimers and how they can affect the activity, either upregulating. Sometimes they, we can even downregulate the activity. So we have um, three basic ways that we can um, enhancer proteins can help um, upregulate transcription. In this instance, we have um, in light blue, we have our, our, DNA, our promoter region. And in purple, a little bit to the left, we have this enhancer sequence. So that's the cis element. And we have the um, transcription factor that will bind down to the enhancer, se enhancer sequence. And then we have this um, five-sided five, um, green protein that binds to the activator region. And this will help the DNA loop around. So this, um, the green um, five-membered thing, what's that called? Pentagon. Pentagon? I don't know will interact with the basal transcription factors to increase RNA polymerase activity. So this is an example of the activator region interacting with activator proteins to help the basal transcriptional machinery work. Transcription factors can also act as repressors. So I'm going to be showing you three different ways they can, that um, we can, um, three modes of action. It's competition, quenching, and blocking. So I'm going to give you pictures of each. This is an example of uh, competition for enhancer sequences. So we have the activator um, transcription factor that wants to bind down to the activator region. But this repressor protein also recognizes the same sequence of, se of DNA. So they're competing with each other. And typically the one that's in the highest concentration, whether it's the transacting factor or whether it's the repressor protein, Whichever, whichever one is more typically wins out. In that way, the transcription factor can't bind to the DNA. So um, it won't interact with the basal factor. So repressor proteins in this way can reduce transcription levels. And in this way, it's through competition. This is the next example that we call quenching. So we have the transacting factor. A repressor protein will bind to the DNA domain of the transcription factor so that now it can't bind to the enhancer sequence. And it, can't, it no longer helps out the basal factors. And the last one we're going to be speaking about is blocking. So the repressor protein binds to the activation domain. The DNA binding domain is still OK, so it will bind to the enhancer sequence. But because the activator domain has a repressor protein, it doesn't interact with the basal transcriptional machinery. So three examples of, of these um, repressor proteins binding. So you should know these three different ways, because they could be three choices on a multiple choice question, maybe, yeah? So here we have in words everything we just said, so that might help you with your studies. How are we doing for time? Okay. Different genes possess the same regulatory sequences, and after I explain this concept, we'll take a little bit of a break, and then we'll get back to it, okay? Different genes possess the same cis regulatory sequence. Now, we were talking about in the prokaryotic system that genes that have to be coordinated together have a polycystronic fashion. Yeah? 
tip to tail, tip to tail. One promoter, so if you need those structural genes to do a particular metabolic whatever, mRNAs together so they're expressed to the same levels and then they're translated into the protein at the same level so we have all of those proteins quickly upregulated to help out a particular metabolic pathway. Eukaryotic system, we have all those different chromosomes. We have 20, how many chromosome pairs do we have? 23, 22 autosomes and the two sex chromosomes. So we have all of this DNA. So um, if you think about it, we have genes in a pathway tip to tail. No, we don't. We have the genes all over the place. Um, say if you're thinking about hypoxia, hypoxia. So we have um, a low oxygen condition. We have enzymes that help a human survive a hypoxic episode. Many different genes, but they're found on all the different chromosomes. There might be something that, uh, that helps vasodilation or angiogenesis on chromosome 1, and then we have something that erythropoiesis that was on chromosome 7. So we have a number of different genes that help a person survive a particular metabolic thing or uh, uh, an environmental thing, and they have to be coordinated. If this signal comes about, we have to find a way to coordinate the expression of all these genes. These genes are monocystronic. They each have their own promoter. However, they can have the same cis element somewhere upstream, so that each of these different genes on different chromosomes can have a similar cis element upstream to help coordinate the expression of all these different genes all one time, all together. We need to coordinate these things, and we have ex examples here, stage-specific expression during embryo development, tissue-specific expression, and then um, to re respond to external stimuli, that's hypoxia, hormonal, and stress. So these response elements, they're called response elements, they're called cis elements, they can be response elements. They're short sequences of DNA, and they can be within the gene promoter region. Sometimes they can be a little bit upstream um, as well, and they help regulate the transcription of a number of different genes that belong to the same sort of metabolic pathway, and they need to be regulated in a similar fashion. So this is my little um, animation. So I have five different colors of chromosomes to suggest, or DNA to su suggest they're different chromosomes, but they all have the same cis element that I've highlighted in red. These are the transcription factors at the bottom left. They're the green X's. So if we have a particular signal, we have these transcription factors that will come and bind down to all the cis elements and all the different genes to help coordinate the expression of all of those genes. Same protein, yeah, the same transcription factor. And they're the trans factors, they're those, dome, those, those, those homodimers or heterodimers that will bind down to the DNA. So it's all the same transcription factors that respond to one particular situation like hypoxia or whatever, they bind to the same cis elements, those same sequence of DNA on a whole bunch of different genes to help coordinate the expression of genes to save us from hypoxia or heat stroke. Trans elements expressed in response to a signal. So we'll give you a break. Yeah? Yes. Place your bets for the Super Bowl. <laughs>